Hello and welcome to Hard Tack episode 15, Dunkirk part 2, The Evacuation. I'm your host Sam and with me is my friend and co-host Mike. Hey Mike, how you doing? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. It's daylight savings. We talked about that. There was a little confusion with the time for recording. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> but, uh, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my Irish coffee again this week and uh, I'm excited for this episode. Fantastic. In the final part of this series, we will be talking about the Dunkirk evacuation, codenamed Operation Dynamo, the miracle in which some 338,000 Allied soldiers were rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk over the course of nine days. Let's get into it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Hardtack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree listed in the episode description. Or you can just search Hardtack Pod, that's just one word, on any of those platforms and you'll find us. You may also email us at hardtackpod at gmail.com with comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Subscribe, everybody, subscribe. Subscribe what else? <laughs> subscribe or die. <laughs> Last week in episode 14, part one of this series, Mike and I discussed Germany's 1940 invasion of Belgium and the Western Front. We followed the British Expeditionary Force and their allies' numerous failed counteroffenses against the Wehrmacht until they eventually became encircled in the northern pocket of France and Belgium, leaving the port of Dunkirk the only viable option for evacuating. We highly recommend you listen to that episode before studying this one. Before we get into the specifics of the operation, we first need to have a quick look at the planning that went into the evacuation and the defensive line that was established around Dunkirk. On the 19th of May, Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey, Flag Officer Commanding Dover, was summoned to the War Office in London for a meeting chaired by Major General Michael Riddell Webster, Quartermaster General to the Forces. The topic for discussion? the evacuation. At this meeting, the evacuation was planned out in three stages. Beginning on the 20th of May, non-combatants would first be evacuated at the rate of 2,000 per day. Starting on the 22nd, the base personnel would then be evacuated, totaling 15,000. Fighting divisions of the British Expeditionary Force was to be evacuated last. At this stage of the planning process, it was unknown how many men would eventually be saved, but the prospect of evacuating tens of thousands of troops was seen as formidable and on a scale unprecedented in the history of war. There were three significant difficulties that were identified in the planning to attempt an evacuation of this size. Firstly, it would only be possible to evacuate the personnel. 
All equipment not carried by hand would have to be abandoned. The organisation of units and formations would not be able to be kept, meaning that men would arrive haphazardly, separated from their own officers and non-commissioned officers without any knowledge of the whereabouts of their unit. Things like quarters, pay, clothing, blankets and food would have ceased to exist. No reliance could be made on cooking equipment or cooks. This seems like so much of a logistical nightmare to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The equipment's being left behind. Of course, the Germans are going to take that and utilize it. But then the separation of officers from their non-commissioned officers and their, their enlisted men and, and the, the absolute just hodgepodge, really, of units and then just basic necessities all gone. It's just it seems like so much of a disaster. It'd be so hard to keep track of everyone. Yeah. Just the basic necessities as well. Like they would really out for survival. When you think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely they were. And and that's the thing. It's so frustrating, even going back to, to the part one of Dunkirk that we did last week, where mm. they kept planning for these counteroffensives, one after the other, and they all failed to the point where it was like, guys, maybe we should stop mm. and start, you know, planning planning something a little differently. And it it was like they were in denial up to this point. And then when the planning came, it was like, hey, we have one day. Screw the materials. Things are going to be chaotic. And it's like, had you just recognized your failure from the beginning? And again, hindsight is 20-20, right? Yeah. But a lot of this could have been alleviated with simple planning. But instead they went, all right, 19th of May, point of no return. Evacuation starts tomorrow. You have probably less than 24 hours. Get moving. Like, what a, what a yeah. shit show, man. And I feel like that's something that Churchill and the... Even de Gaulle, right? Yeah, Churchill and the officials in the War Office of London wouldn't have considered all these moving parts. So I feel like that's probably why they were so insistent on the counteroffensives and didn't realize, hey, maybe we should evacuate a lot sooner than we'd planned to. Yeah, Yeah, I just, I don't understand the blatant denial or disregard the refusal to see reality for what it was. Yeah. Following the conclusion of this meeting, Ramsey was given complete control over the evacuation plan. The day after, he called a meeting at his office in Dover. And little tidbit, his office was actually situated in the tunnels that had been excavated during the invasion threat from the French during the Napoleonic Wars. Albeit the tunnels remain unoccupied since 1827, but they were reopened following the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. The tunnels became the naval headquarters on Dover. The centre of the HQ was a single gallery, ending at an opening in a wall at the cliff face, where Ramsay had his office. Ramsay's office was separated from the secretary, flag lieutenant, chief of staff, and the staff office by a series of small rooms that led deep into the chalk. Beyond them, a sizable room was used for gatherings and conferences related to running the naval base. It was referred to as the Dynamo Room and served as an auxiliary electrical plant during World War I. On May 20, Ramsay called his staff to the Dynamo Room, together with liaison officers from the War Office Movement Control and the Ministry of Shipping, to negotiate the evacuation of the BEF. Crewing the ships required to rescue the BEF meant there needed to be a significant increase in Navy personnel. It was quickly apparent that the base staff at Dover would need to be reorganised in order to handle the sudden influx of all the extra work. It was decided to establish this new entity within the confines of the conference room. Thus, the planning, organising and preparation for the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force and allies from France took place in this former dynamo room. It then became known as Operation 
Dynamo. Ramsey then issues orders to a sizable fleet of Royal Navy vessels, including destroyers and gunboats, to get ready to sail towards Dunkirk. Whilst the operation was almost underway, a defensive line was being established around Dunkirk in order to safeguard those evacuating from the beaches. So, what did that look like, and who was involved? Well, by the evening of the 26th, the commander of the BEF, Gortz, had planned the withdrawal. The BEF held the front at this point, stretching around 128 kilometers. They occupied an area of 156 kilometers, which was simply too large to be defended, even though portions of this front were held by French forces. The space needed to gradually get smaller. The front would be cut by 93 kilometers, and this cut would occur over the next three days, coming to conclusion on May 29th. Next on the list to be considered was a bridgehead around Dunkirk, and it was designed to protect the port as the troops were evacuating the beachheads. The task of establishing the bridgehead was assigned to Lieutenant General Sir Ronald Adam. Gort requested from the War Office of London that a brigade of the 1st Canadian Division from England could be provided to help hold the bridgehead. Initially, the request was accepted, but after some due consideration, it was found that it had already been proven difficult to evacuate the 300,000-odd troops, and adding to that number just didn't make any sense. Adam immediately assumed command of all the Dunkirk region soldiers and started setting up the logistics for receiving the three corps of the BEF and setting up the defenses. He was instructed to act in harmony with the nearby French forces, but only if doing so would not put the British soldiers in danger or obstruct their evacuation. The distance between the coast and the front line was closing in on itself as the troops withdrew. This allowed the remaining troops to the rear, who were no longer needed, to leave immediately. With these men gone, the port could then be made available for the fighting troops, who would be pursuing the enemy as they tried to evacuate. Adam and the commanders of the French forces soon outlined their plans to defend Dunkirk and the wide beaches north of the harbor. These beaches extended 12 kilometers to the Belgian border and a further 15 kilometers to Neoport. The shore is a broad belt of shelving sand across the entire 28 kilometers with a long stretch of sand dunes behind it that are partially covered in long, sharp sprouts of grass and patches of sea thistle. During peacetime, the organization of the fortified sector of Flanders served as the foundation for the French defenses of Dunkirk. These were comprised of two sectors. The inner sector, led by General Beaufrère, followed the Mardet Canal's route to Spiker, then went through Bear to the border and the sea. General Bartholomé oversaw the outer sector, which ran along the River Ah. Lieutenant General Fagald had a combination of local troops and the French 68th Division, which had just left Belgium to man these defenses. The 68th Division held the French portion of the inner sector, while the local forces were placed on the outer line. The flooding of the land west of the port, all the way to Bear, was a crucial component of the Dunkirk defensive plan. As soon as possible, Fagald acted by opening the sluices of the River Ah. Later, Fagald and Gort concurred that the British should be in charge of the eastern half of the inner perimeter, which extended as far as Newport, while the French should be in charge of the western side. At this point, with the Germans quickly closing in, it was assumed the Allies only had 48 hours to evacuate 45,000 men, and this was the best-case scenario. So did it actually happen that way? Did the best-case scenario play out, or did something less desirable take place? These were questions that Allied leaders surely asked themselves. Did their plan survive as they had hoped? Let's find out. As the withdrawal began, the highways were blocked by a wave of fleeing civilians and abandoned vehicles. The situation was chaotic. Lance Corporal Kenneth Carver, 5th Motor Ambulance Convoy, remembered, quote, It was heart-rending to see the people with all their worldly belongings on their carts. Shoulders, wheelbarrows, perambulators. You had to push these people aside while trying hard not to cause casualties. But invariably, you pushed a cart or wheelbarrow into a hedge, 
and your instructions were to keep going and not help people at all. These people were traveling miles and miles with no food or water or accommodation, end quote. Regretfully, this isn't something that we mentioned at all in the last episode, but civilians were also affected by the impending German encirclement. These people were fleeing their homes and took everything they could physically carry with them. The situation was dire for all, especially those who were fleeing with no food or water. Some men had to fight to the coast, and many of them had become isolated from their parent units, struggling in small groups or joining others who looked like they knew where they were going. After traveling all night on the congested highways, many men marched inside the perimeter. Some had lost their commanders in the darkness and were stumbling along with others who were rushing for the coast. It is important to keep in mind that the BEF had not prepared its members for the situation the soldiers were now facing. No commander prepares his men to flee. So, Mike, as an active service member, do you agree with that sentiment? When looking at that particular line, no commander prepares his men to flee, I think it's accurate, simply because to flee is to quit. And I don't want quitting confused with tactical retreat. There are times where the wisest decision is to fall back for the sake of survival, so the fight can be continued on better terms. Fleeing, using that word, I think implies surrender in a lot of cases. But sometimes a tactical retreat so that you can find better footing and go back on the offensive is the right answer. Mm -hmm. And that's what Dunkirk was. But if the BEF hadn't planned or made preparations for the circumstance it was now in, the Germans didn't either. The enthusiastic claim that the chief of the Luftwaffe general staff could kill the British from the air was quickly seized upon by the German high command. And it was reflected in Hitler's directive number 13, which was released on May 24 and stated, quote, Next goal of operations is the annihilation of the French, British, and Belgian forces. The Luftwaffe's role in this operation is to eliminate all enemy resistance in the areas that are encircled and to stop the British forces from crossing the English Channel. End quote. At this point, it was believed by the Germans that the BEF was trapped and had no chance of escaping. This was due to the calculations made by General Admiral Otto Schneewind, who told Göring, the chief of the Luftwaffe, that the orderly transport of large numbers of troops in these conditions simply cannot take place. He also said that the Royal Navy was not in a position to take part in evacuating the troops and there were no signs to suggest otherwise. Basically, German high command at this point was really lacking in military intelligence. Is is that accurate? I would assume it also has something to do with the fact that they're a bit arrogant that they were winning. Yeah, and you can see that even from the quote that that Hitler put out in his directive where next goal of operations is the annihilation of the French, British, and Belgian forces. Like, it's just a that hey this is next it will be done um and here's your role it, it, there's yeah. a lot of audacity in that statement yeah yeah it's it's like a concluding statement like this is it this is what's yeah. going to happen and yeah and then to, and then to, hey there's no way they can evacuate these forces the royal navy is mm-hmm. not in any position to do so don't worry about it move forward as planned it, it's just so much assuming so much audacity so much hubris honestly hubris. ignorance yeah yeah wow now we have an idea of the defensive line that was established and are aware of the conditions that followed those fleeing to the coast of dunkirk the royal navy is officially mobilized to begin evacuating troops. Operation Dynamo was set to commence at 1857 hours, which is oddly specific, on the evening of the 26th of May. The first order of business 
establishing a secure route across the channel. There would be little point in evacuating if they were just going to be sunk by U-boats or Stukas. Therefore, Ramsey had to form a protective screen to the eastwards of the evacuation area and provide anti-aircraft defenses. He also sent minesweepers to clear the seas around Dunkirk. The defense of the port and the beaches from this point forward was now the responsibility of fighter command. But now came the greatest task of the operation, securing enough vessels to rescue the British Expeditionary Force. Available for the operation were 76 small vessels from Dover Command and four Belgian warships, the motorboats of the Ramsgate Contraband Control Base, and passenger launches. Vice Admiral Sir Lionel Preston, director of the small vessel's pool, was tasked with locating the many more small boats that would be needed in addition to this. The outcome of thousands of Allied soldiers were dependent on the success of this mission. Before Dynamo's formal launch, the Isle of Thanet, a hospital ship, had packed up a shipload of patients from Dunkirk early on the 26th. Later that morning, Worthing and her sister ship, Isle of Guernsey, sailed for France while under aerial attack off Calice. Even so, they both arrived at Dunkirk that evening. Their entry into the harbor was illuminated by fires raging throughout the town and along the dock. British landing ship infantry, made of Orleans, sailed for Dunkirk with 250 men of the Royal Corps of Signal and the Royal Army Service Corps to assist with overseeing control operations in and around the harbor. The ship also carried much-needed provisions such as water, cases of maps, and food. Much of the BEF had been on half rations since 23rd. On the first attempt at entering Dunkirk, the ship came under aerial attack. The vessel ended up retreating to Dover and the company of two passenger ships. The Maid of Orleans was more successful on the second attempt at entering Dunkirk, and was accompanied by the destroyer Wild Swan. From this point forward, steamers and other passenger ships began setting sail to rescue the BEF, also accompanied by destroyers. Despite being under heavy attack by the end of the first day of the operation, Operation. The Allies were able to evacuate 7,669 men safely across the channel. However, that's not that many. As thousands of Allied soldiers tried to escape across the channel, Goering's Luftwaffe started to obliterate the port of Dunkirk. There was wave after wave of aerial bombardments, and the port was essentially on fire with casualties lying in the streets, and there was no electricity and no running water. The scene, if you can imagine it, was beyond horrific. So where was the RAF? Much would depend on the Royal Air Force providing protection from the air if the Royal Navy was going to be able to continue continue crossing the channel to rescue at least a fraction of the BEF. Sir Cyril Newall, the chief of the air staff, issued the following order to the heads of all RAF commands early on the 27th, well aware of the weight of duty that would fall upon the RAF. Quote, Today is likely to be the most critical day ever experienced by the British Army. The extreme gravity of the situation should be explained to all units. I am confident that all ranks will appreciate that this is the duty of the RAF to make their greatest effort today to assist their comrades of both the Army and the Navy. Fighter Command shall ensure the protection of Dunkirk beaches, three miles on either side from first light until darkness by continuous fighter patrols in strength, and have due regard to the protection of bomber sorties and the provision of support of the BEF area, end quote. The squadrons at the important sector station of Biggin Hill, as well as Air Vice Marshal Keith Park's 11th group, would be particularly responsible for defending the ships and the evacuation from the beaches. The Spitfires and Hurricanes were to operate in alternate waves from 0430 hours to 1930 hours each, at squadron strength at 50 minute intervals. In the course of the day, the Luftwaffe launched 225 conventional bomber assaults and 75 bomber attacks on Dunkirk, dropping more than 350
50 tonnes of ordnance, including 15,000 high-explosive bombs and 30,000 incendiaries. 18 of the Heinkel 111s of KG-1 and KG-4 carried out the first of these raids, which hit the harbour and destroyed seven docking basins, five miles of quays and 115 acres of docks and warehouses. The RAF did respond, flying 287 sorties along the Belgian coast from Gravelines to Ostend, claiming to have shot down 21 German bombers, but losing 14 hurricanes and five Spitfires in the process. The time that 19 fighter commands aircraft could spend over the shores of France and Belgium was obviously limited, so it was impossible to know when the next German attack would arrive. This resulted in frequent Luftwaffe flights over Dunkirk and the nearby beaches, which led to numerous protests from the soldiers that the RAF had abandoned them. This wasn't accurate. For beach protection, 16 squadrons of the number 11 group were there. The worn out pilots were replaced by those groups, numbers 12 and 13, after continuous days of combat. 32 squadrons were used to cover the evacuation during Operation Dynamo. What the BEF didn't really understand was a lot of the dogfighting occurred well away from the beaches. Yeah, I was going to say, it would be easy to miss that considering that the order given was three miles to either side. And three Mm. miles is a long way. In the air, you might be able to see three miles without anything, you know, blocking your view, obviously, depending on weather conditions. But on the ground, you're not necessarily going to be able to see three miles to your your left or right, north, south, east, west, what have you. So while they might have felt that they were abandoned, clearly what they were unable to realize at that time was that there were sorties being flown, dogfights being fought around the beaches of Dunkirk to keep the Luftwaffe from arriving at Dunkirk from bombing the soldiers evacuating Dunkirk. There was a lot of cloud cover as well. So the weather was to the Allied advantage because they had pretty atrocious weather, like for most of the evacuation. So that worked out really well for the Allies because it made it harder for the Luftwaffe to actually see down below. But in that same token, it also made it really hard for the BEF to actually see any RAF spitfires or hurricanes actually in the sky. Mm. But Given the fact that, you know, they're exhausted, disorientated, angry, hungry, tired, whatever, they just they just probably wouldn't have thought of that. Right. So immediately they just would have went, well, they've abandoned us. Right. And it would be easy to see that. But when you look at the statistics, again, hindsight being 2020, mm. 287 sorties, that's a lot over a very short amount of time. And mm-hmm. yeah, they shot down 21 German bombers, but they lost 19 of their own. Mm-hmm. So clearly the conditions in the sky were rough that out of all those sorties, there were so few shot down. And, and you can all, you can also see that looking at what the the Luftwaffe dropped 350 tons of ordnance, 15,000 high explosive bombs, 30,000 incendiaries. They couldn't see, they were just trying to drop bombs anywhere Mm -hmm. that they thought there might've been a troop presence. So clearly the weather was against any air force activity. And But in the moment, I can see how evacuating from Dunkirk after weeks of just failed offensives, all, uh, the only thing on their mind, perhaps as a foot soldier, and, and I'll tell you, we're the, we're the best at complaining. They were looking for a reason to bitch, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to have perspective in that moment. The yeah. fog of war, both literally and figuratively, uh, was clouding everybody's judgment. The fatigue must have yeah. been overwhelming. Yeah, I suppose looking for someone to blame other than the obvious absolutely the germans you know it's always somebody's so. fault you got to point a finger for your own discomfort right it's not yeah. me it's hard to have anything but an inward mindset when when you feel like you're the center of the world my suffering is most important right 
but that's yeah, just perception. Exactly. Mm-hmm. After ruthless wave after wave aerial bombardments from the Luftwaffe, the port of Dunkirk is completely destroyed. The Allies are officially stranded. There remains a large issue now of how the soldiers were going to get onto the boats with the port destroyed. The big ships who are going to evacuate the largest number of troops can't berth onto the sand. So, how did they navigate this very serious problem? They did it with the little ships. The Navy made an urgent appeal. Using newsreels, cinema, and radio broadcasts, the Royal Navy put out a call for motor launches, yachts, sailing boats, even fishing boats, otherwise known as little ships, to report to the Admiralty to be used to sail to Dunkirk to help rescue the stranded Allied forces. It's important to note here that these ships were then going to be used by the Royal Navy crew, and civilians were not tasked to drive the ships themselves. One of the boat's requisition was a motor yacht named the Sundowner, owned by Charles Lightoller. Lightoller was a senior surviving officer from the Titanic and had served as a Royal Navy commander during the First World War. This guy was insistent on taking the boat to Dunkirk himself, so he recruited his son and a sea scout to join him to cross the English Channel in his motor yacht. Fucking awesome. Yeah, so little fun fact for those that have seen the Dunkirk film. Mr. Dawson, the character of the film, is actually based off Charles Lightoller. So the next time you watch the film, just remember that Mr. Dawson was based off Lightoller. Pretty cool, actually. A lot of people have seen Dunkirk. I have not. Don't tell anyone. Oh, I'm going to tell everyone. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> The Sundowner, amongst hundreds of other little ships, was now advancing toward Dunkirk. Unfortunately, the Luftwaffe began preying on these ships, as they were easy targets. The troops couldn't all be saved by leaving the beaches, even with the assistance of the little ships. Senior naval officer Bill Tennant, who is the equivalent to Ramsey, arrived in Dunkirk and aided in hastening the evacuation. The Hitler-issued halt order, which was discussed in the previous episode, Dunkirk Part 1, was lifted shortly after Tennant's arrival. Panzer divisions advanced quickly on Dunkirk. The Allies now had to contend with Rommel's approaching brutal Panzer divisions in addition to a fully damaged port and Luftwaffe aerial bombardments. The idea of evacuating 45,000 men in just two days was becoming more unrealistic by the minute. Tennant was planning how to expedite the evacuation as he arrived at Dunkirk. He discovered a breakwater, also what is called a mole, that stretches a kilometre out into the sea. It really isn't intended to be used to board ships, rather. It is solely designed to guard the harbour. But Tennant proposed using it as a jetty. It actually succeeded. This made it possible for the much larger ships to arrive and begin evacuating more allies personnel. The mole worked significantly better than the beaches. And this wasn't the only creative response to the Dunkirk disaster. So, hey Mike, remember earlier in this episode when we spoke about how all the equipment that they carried would have to be abandoned in the evacuation, including modes of transport and other equipment? Yes, this this frustrated me. Yeah. Well, be frustrated no longer because the Royal Engineers came up with this genius idea to assist in evacuating more troops. So what they did was they utilized abandoned vehicles and equipment to form makeshift jetties. So how they did it, they pushed these trucks out onto the beach, into the water after bursting the tires, out in a line and attached them to each other, placing sandbags along the top and then wooden planks on top of that, thus making themselves an emergency pier. That is wonderful innovation. Isn't it? You gotta leave it to the engineers. My, my brother, Zach, is an engineer mm-hmm. uh, for the Army Corps of Engineers. And this is something that I could see him doing. The, 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 the innovation that engineers use yeah. in tight situations like this, fucking awesome. And here's an example of that. So shout out to the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Absolutely. 
So these little improvements made a significant impact on how many troops they were able to evacuate. By the 28th of May, the number of men evacuated from Dunkirk had doubled to over 25,000. This means they were pretty much halfway to their goal of evacuating 45,000 men. And in a very short time, realistically, given their, their plans, which were not encouraging. Yeah, like they weren't initially planning to evacuate 300 odd thousand. They were just aiming for the 45,000. So this was good. They yeah. were tracking well. Very much so. However, thousands of soldiers remained waiting to be evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk, and battles were still taking place in the villages that surrounded the harbor. As we mentioned earlier, the French were holding the West Line, and the British were defending the East Line of the perimeter around Dunkirk. The line was made up of a network of canals and rivers, respectively. The rear guard units had a seemingly simple order to abide by. Fight until you are dead were captured. Those that were manning the defensive line around Dunkirk sacrificed everything to keep the Wehrmacht at bay while the remaining BEF and Allied forces waited on the beach to be evacuated. And I have to say, Mike, those guys are not, they're not often mentioned a lot in history. Like, I feel like they, they, they're not given enough credit. Like when people think yeah. of the evacuation, tremendous amount of soldiers that were evacuated. But but what about the, the soldiers that were left behind and sacrificed themselves so that those men could evacuate, you know? Yeah, the, those that enabled the evacuation. And I, I know that was brought up in uh, the last episode where we had that quote from Churchill where he talked about sacrificing yourself. Mm-hmm. In the rear guard, you know, on the forward lines while everyone else did evacuate. I mean, he sentenced them to death. Um, And 45,000, I'm not going to say it's a paltry amount, but it must have been difficult for some at that time. So for them to not know, obviously, because they were killed, that their efforts resulted in over 300,000 being evacuated. What an honorable Mm -hmm. sacrifice. What an honorable sacrifice they made. Now over 40,000 men have been successfully rescued. In the final days of the operation, as the weather began to clear, the Allies suffered devastating losses, as more ships attempted to evacuate Allied troops. To summarise, from the 1st of June, just nine destroyers sent to Dunkirk out of 41 remained undamaged. The casualties were mounting, and the Allies were not gaining any more success by evacuating throughout the day. Frustrated with the with the casualties mounting, Tennant then began to order the evacuation in the final days of the operation to occur at night time. Just 24 hours later, the last remaining ships of BEF evacuees begin to leave Dunkirk. Tennant, along with a colleague, scoured the beaches for any remaining troops. With no success in finding any more troops along the beaches to evacuate, Bill Tennant signalled to Ramsey at Dover, BEF, evacuated. By the 4th of June, almost 340,000 troops were evacuated from Dunkirk, including over 100,000 French soldiers. Thus, the term Miracle of Dunkirk comes to light to name the most historic evacuation in the history of war. Allied soldiers anticipated hostility on arriving home to Britain. They had this belief that they had failed and had nothing to be proud of retreating back home. But on the contrary, they were greeted with nothing less but overwhelming support. One returning soldier recalled feeling this tremendous sense of euphoria. They were treated as heroes and as if they had won. It was on the 4th of June that Churchill addressed the House of Commons in response to the evacuation. From his speech, and I quote, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. End quote. 
This was a crucial moment for British morale. Churchill was not attempting to highlight the evacuation of the BEF and Allied forces as a victory. Rather, that despite the loss of France, the Allied forces would not give up and would continue to fight as long as they needed to for the rest of the Second World War. Now, it was definitely a, a, a massive success in the face of a huge defeat. It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I can see that. I can see that. So, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine, let's say 300,000, as opposed, you know, that 300,000 uh, didn't evacuate, that it was just that 45. You're talking 295,000 yeah. troops. Where do you make up for that? Like, yeah. Those extra 300,000 that they did not anticipate, 295,000 if you want to get specific, how do you fill those gaps? And then where did those 295 later go? And I'm sure we can trace that and there's history on it. But that is a massive, a massive amount of manpower that God knows, you know, (laughs) like. Which realistically, because, you know, if they weren't able to evacuate that many troops, Mm. like how effective would the British have been for the rest of the war? Exactly. Exactly. That's a huge blow to manpower. Three three hundred thousand men is a lot, a lot. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, Miracle of Dunkirk is uh, is appropriate. That that's just mm. astounding. Absolutely. And and the civilian call to support the the, yeah. the military, um, industrial system where there were mm. yachts and boats and tugs and just all these fishing, fishing boats. Fishing boats. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, what a call to arms and, and for the civilian. Yeah. And, and it's been like that, you know, in history and countless nations yeah. uh, where the civilians really step up and, and mm. lean into the, the war effort. And you can see that here where the civilians mm. of, of Britain and, and the low countries and across Europe there uh, on, in the West really rose to the call and mm. it wouldn't have been possible. Dunkirk was just as much, a civilian yeah. and international success as it was a military success. Absolutely. So uh, huge props to all those people that sacrificed themselves, their livelihoods and, and yeah. in some cases, probably their well-being, their, their very means of well-being with their boats. Yeah. And, and I'm sure like one of the reasons why they would have risen to the opportunity is because, I mean, I'm sure they would have felt helpless um, when the war started, you know, they'd want to help as much as they could. And this was going to be a big way that they could. So a lot of people would have really leapt at that opportunity. So yeah, yeah. a lot of patriotism there. It's pretty cool. This concludes the final part of the Dunkirk series. I hope we were able to do it justice and that you guys enjoyed listening and learning something new. I know I learned a lot of new things <laughs> personally. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Hey, when it it's, comes to World it, War II, the Pacific is my, that, that's my bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. It's it's nice to know that even a an academic such as yourself is still learning new new stuff. Especially I'm, border, I'm borderline academic at best. Don't 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 overstate it. <laughs> don't overstate it. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hard tack dry. Mm-hmm.